just all the different things I had been interested in in my life up to that point really fit with this more contextual model. And I've always just been very in my head as a person, and I still am. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here. That has not gone away. But to me, when, you know, such a big part of ACT and psychological flexibility is about just getting into a different stance with, with that, that kind of intellectualized place and really contacting your experience in a different way. And it just cracked things wide open for me. That was Debbie Sorensen, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Debbie Sorensen. Debbie is a psychologist in private practice in Denver, Colorado, and a part-time clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain VA for suicide prevention. She co-created and co-hosts the popular psychology podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock. She also is a co-author of the book, Act Daily Journal, Get Unstuck, and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, along with Diana Hill, who is also on the podcast. Debbie has presented her work nationally and internationally at ACBS World Conferences and has served as a lecturer in the psychology department at Harvard University. In this episode, we explore how Debbie found her way to act, the value of emotional openness and present moment awareness, Debbie's reflections on collaboration, challenges associated with having a public voice, Debbie's clinical work with those impacted by burnout, and being a therapist in times when we're dealing with our own life stressors. This was a really wonderful conversation with Debbie. She's a really cool person, very insightful, and I am very thankful that she took this time to speak with me. Um, I've been making my way through the co-hosts at Psychologists Off the Clock. I already had Jill Stoddard and Diana Hill on, and those were great episodes if you haven't heard those. And I'm so glad I got this chance to speak with Debbie. And to you listeners, thank you so much for being here. I know I took some time off. I had some stuff going on in my personal life. We get into it a a little bit in the episode, but just want you to know that I'm committed to doing this podcast. And even if I take some time off, I'll always be back. And uh, I really appreciate the continued support. It's uh, it means a lot to me that keep coming back and listening to episodes. And yeah, thank you. All right, well, without further delay, let's just jump into the conversation with Debbie Sorensen. I started off doing, uh, when I would do these interviews, like doing the check-in and then having the pause and be like, let me do an introduction. Can you introduce yourself? And and then I found what was happening. I was starting out these, having this really organic, nice conversation with somebody. And then we'd go into like podcast mode and it really broke the flow. So I've been finding that just letting a conversation happen have been the best ones. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. 
You're an excellent interviewer, by the way. Really? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Likewise. No. Your podcast is terrific, and I love the tone and authenticity. I appreciate that. I feel like we're always our own worst critics, aren't we? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think one of the last ones I was listening to, well, the last podcast I did, it's been a minute, I did it with Robin Walzer, and it's uh, she's she's amazing. And in preparation, I was listening to some, you've done multiple with her, and mm-hmm. I listened to a couple. They were really great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I love Robin. She's I've known her for a, a long time, and just she has the most warm, open um, way of talking and speaking. And yeah, I'm very lucky that she's been on the podcast multiple times. Yeah, yeah. I told her in the interview, which was very sincere, that I wish she could be my therapist. Like I'm jealous of everyone who got to have her as a therapist. Me too. Yes. <laughs> too bad. We too bad. I know her personally and <laughs> she's not in my state. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Who were your, well, how'd you first get into act and who were your first influences, whether it was a training book workshop, what, how'd you get in? How'd I get into act? Yeah. Um, long story. So I'll try to not be too long. So I, Maybe I'll just go ahead and be slightly long. I was originally more of an academic psychologist. I was planning to go more into research and academia. And then I decided to switch to clinical psych instead. And I had to do, I had to go back and do clinical training after I had my PhD. And I was learning about a number of therapy approaches. So more psychodynamic therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, kind of traditional CBT and dialectical behavior therapy. And it was when I was learning about dialectical behavior therapy that I started to hear a little bit about ACT from people I was working with. And I think like a lot of ACT practitioners, I don't know if you can relate to this yourself, Tom, but as soon as I started to learn about it, it just really connected for me on so many different levels. It was what I needed and it was what was, it just fit together philosophically really well with just some ways I see the world. But then I also think some of the pieces of it, you know, I started going to some workshops and reading books and that kind of thing. It just really felt like this is what I need in my life. Um, And so I started, yeah, I really started reading and doing trainings, but was a little bit slow to actually really jump fully into it. And at the time I worked at the VA, well, at the time I really was ready to jump in fully to it. I worked at the VA and they have this national training program for clinicians. And I kind of lucked into a spot in one of the trainings that Robin was, Robin was leading that whole Mm -hmm. thing. Robin Walzer was leading that that program. And so I did the training. And part of that is that you get consultation and you really do act with a few clients in the workshops, very in depth and experiential. And after that, I never really looked back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It's uh, I had a very similar experience where just your first time being um, exposed to act, there's this cool mix of feeling like this new thing that you learned is spot on and also 
that this new thing that you learned is old stuff that you already knew like deep within mm-hmm. you. Yeah. You know, I think that for me, I, it really helped me hang a lot of things together philosophically that really resonated with my experience. Um, it's hard to put this into words, but I think just all the different things I had been interested in, in my life up to that point, really fit with this more contextual model. Mm-hmm. And on a, I'll be a little bit more personal about this too. I've always just been very in my head as a person, and I still am. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here. That has not gone away. But to me, when, you know, such a big part of ACT and psychological flexibility is about just getting into a different stance with, with that, that kind of intellectualized place and really contacting your experience in a different way. And it just cracked things wide open for me. Mm. Um, and so that was like, I think the personal piece of it that really, that's what I needed. I mm. needed to get out of my head as, as one of the act books is titled. I see yeah. you nodding. Oh is yeah. That, I can resonate yeah. so much with that. Yeah. 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 It's uh, I mean, I think a lot of us can, right? I mean, I think we live in a culture that really um, idolizes the rational mind. And uh, while it has its place and it can be really useful, it's a good tool, but a lot of us are dominated by it. Yeah, totally. It, it sort of takes over. And it it's a little bit reinforced because I do think you're right. In our culture, there's it's helpful in a lot of ways to be in your head a lot and sort of an over overly analytical type of person. Um, and I, I don't know. I also think that there was a lot about emotions that I didn't really learn or I didn't know when I was younger that I really, it would have helped me if I would have, but that there's something about just being more open to all the different aspects of your experience just really helps helps you. I don't know. It's, I, 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 sometimes it's similar to that idea of emotional intelligence. It's like this ability to really feel things wholeheartedly and understand what you're feeling. That's what I needed. Mm, Yeah, me too. I, I definitely leaned way more into thinking about experience rather than feeling experiences. And it's still a journey for me to, notice, you know, you can notice those subtle moments where an emotional experience shows up for you. And there's this almost knee jerk reaction to go up into your head yeah. in situation as soon as you start feeling something. Yes. Yeah. I just, I, I have a memory of, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado and I went to college in Boulder and I would go walking. Boulder's a lovely place. I don't know if you've been there, but it's a lovely place. Mm-hmm town and it's beautiful and you can go for hikes right there and just walk around. It's really nice. And I would just walk around and just be like kind of ruminating over my latest problem. You know, I just might, you know, Oh, I just had a breakup or I was worried about a class or something like that. And I would just be like stewing over and over again in my head. And, and here's where the philosophy of act kind of hit like, tied some pieces together. I wasn't understanding, but then all of a sudden I'd be like looking around, like 
the blinders came off kind of thing. And I'd be like, here I am in this moment. And I would actually be able to contact it a little bit. And it's an act. It's like that observer sense of kind of getting out of, but I didn't really, it was, it was almost like the world became lighter or something like that. Oh, because you can just kind of, yeah. Get out of that, like blah, blah, blah in your head. But I didn't really, I couldn't make sense of it until I learned about act of what that was, what was going on there. Mm, or you ha- and yeah, and you had a framework for it. Whereas yeah. leading up to that point, I feel like most people um, inherently have these moments where we open up fully to the present moment and get out of our heads and really connect to our surroundings and what's happening in our experience. But then as, as soon as that experience ends, we're busy like denying it or pushing it away or just not understanding its significance. And we go back up into the sort of normal, uh, blah, blah, blah. Whereas once you have a framework, like through act, you can start, um, like, I don't know, it's not seeking those out, but creating those moments more, allowing those moments to happen more and know what that is and expand it. And it's something that you, you know, is there rather than something that happens every once in a while. And then it's like, you go back into this other mode. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like you can kind of, it's never going to be there constantly, but you can sort of cultivate it a little bit. Yeah. Practice Mm -hmm. it on intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Where, Where do you, where do you find yourself most connecting to that state of open presence in your life right now? Oh, a few different things. It's honestly, sometimes not all the time. I'm not, I'm not trying to make myself sound like I'm a transcendent being or anything like that. But sometimes when I'm sitting with a client, sometimes, you know what I mean? It's like those moments when you're really connected and you're really in the zone with a client. Um, I can feel that way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would say if I'm unplugged out in maybe out in the world doing something that I find enjoyable, like a, I don't know, on a tra- travel for sure. I just haven't traveled as much lately as I usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, I've with clients. That's me too. I feel, feel like that. I feel like my work as a therapist is like a, it's like a spiritual practice or it's because at my best, it's, it's really like an hour long meditation, you know, or, or maybe like, yeah, a mindfulness exercise of being in that state and noticing when you've lost it and being aware when you've fused or even hooked into, um, yeah, hooked by a thought and coming back into that. I feel like for me, my job as a therapist is such a, this beautiful, like extended mindfulness exercise all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is a chance there to really sink into the moment, even if you're not doing a formal mindfulness exercise. Yes. Like I feel, I don't know about you, Tom, I'm feeling a little bit of it right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm just really in the moment here yeah. and feeling what I'm feeling. And I, and I think a lot of times relationships can be a way to do that. So the therapy relationship, but also, you know, whether it's some really close supportive friends or partner, whoever it might be, but it, but it takes a particular quality 
of conversation, I think, for it to happen. Because a lot of mm-hmm. times it's just like chatter, chatter, you know, rushing around, whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's like an yeah. open hearted kind of moment with another yeah. person. It's a, it's a, I think Steve Hayes phrased it this way when I got to speak with him is like, it's a, it's like a leap of faith where, where you just, you take a leap of faith into being fully immersed in the moment and trusting that whatever comes out of it is what's meant to happen rather than doing the top down planning the next thing you're going to say. And it's, it's a much more um, vibrant way to live when you trust that, trust yourself enough to just sink in and let it come out. Like being on the dance floor or something, you don't have to plan every step. You just kind of trust your body to do what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so fleeting that even as you're saying that, you know, I'm feeling tapping a little bit into that, but then my mind immediately jumps to like, where are we headed next? What's he going <laughs> to, what is this conversation going to go? So it's like, you're kind of in and out of it. Don't yes. you think? Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Because the moment you, become become aware of it or you start to talk about it you lose it because then you're a step away from it it's a Mm -hmm. it's a little subtle dance of being in it and coming slightly out and coming back in and uh uh, yeah maybe maybe we sound like um we're just we might sound really far out to some people that don't (laughs) either don't have the, the language for it or don't connect with it in the same way, not in a judgment way, but everyone relates to these experiences differently. But yeah, it is a really interesting phenomenon, right? Like when you're fully in the moment and engaged, as soon as you start talking about it or becoming too self-conscious of it, you lose it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, that's so true. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. 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 Oh man. Well, I had, sorry, I'm going to change my seating position here. Oh, sure. I'm going to take a sip of my... Yeah. You know, something that I'm very uh, jealous of, lighter word than jealous, because it's um, happy for you that you have is your team at Psychologists Off the Clock and you have and the and the way you collaborate with other people, like with Diana, with your new book, because realizing, like I mentioned in the beginning, I haven't done a podcast in over a month because of life transitions and stressors and unexpected things. And I don't know. I I think it's so cool that you collaborate with people in that way to be able to lean on people like when things show up and then you get people can lean on you when things show up in your life. And so I guess my comment and question is just, yeah. What is it like getting to collaborate with such awesome people and psychologists off the clock? Uh, Tom, I think you're like psychic or something because I don't know how you picked up on that. Maybe it's just because you're you're running your own show here, but this is just something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I had the thought, maybe I'll someday write a book about collaboration, like wholehearted collaboration, which if anyone's listening, don't steal my idea. And I actually doubt I'll ever do it. But um, so thank you for... Um, for bringing this topic up. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's pros and cons, right? Like sometimes group work, I actually hated group work when I was a kid in school, because I think sometimes I got a little lost in the shuffle or I just found it frustrating because I would want to just do something. And, you know, you remember when you're a kid and you did group work and there were always a few like 
horsing around or I don't know. I just didn't really like it when I was young. Mm-hmm. And I think I got a little um, shy maybe or something like that. So I didn't love doing group work when I was a kid, but fast forward to now, I mean, I think that collaborating is really, um, yeah, it's meaningful. I feel really honored. The podcast is just one of the collaborations that I do. And the book co-authored with Diana, who was on the podcast recently. Um, but I think that the, to me, and, and there are moments, I mean, there are moments when just the, you know, you have to have meetings all the time and you have to agree on things and work all that stuff out. And it can be hard sometimes. And you think to yourself, just like, when I was a kid, you think, well, it'd be easier if I could just do this myself sometimes. But I do think it's really enriching. And yeah, there is this sense of helping each other out, carrying the load, supporting each other, um, and really inspiring each other. I think the emotional benefits of collaborating are probably the greatest thing about it is that it does give you this feeling of somebody's got your back. You can maybe go out on a limb a little bit more than you might feel comfortable doing on your own. Um, and it just really, I think that when you collaborate, you can build a deep relationship with people. Like you've been through something hard together. You've worked out some problems, you know, cause sometimes there's that tendency to like shy away from problems with people like, Oh, I don't agree with this person about politics or whatever. So I'm just going to like, not talk about it. Um, but when you're collaborating, that's not really an option. Mm. You have to figure stuff out. And so it does, it can add some depth and it's, it's a little risky if it's someone that you also have a personal relationship. Cause like, you know, what if it impacts the friendship? I know people who like won't collaborate with friends cause of that risk. Um, but it can also just really enhance your relationships with people. Mm. Yeah, it can be, it definitely can be risky, right? But maybe, I don't know if it's naive to think this, but I sort of have trust in collaboration if both people are showing up with good intentions and a willingness to be open and take responsibility for things, that there is a synergy that is like almost guaranteed to happen if you show up with those qualities and good intentions. Yeah. And I think that openness is a huge part of it and can be a challenge for sure to be open to feedback, open to other perspectives, open to working on the hard stuff. Um, that's the, that quality I think matters a lot. You've got to be able to show up and do that. And it's, it's a little, there's some courage behind that. I think. Mm-hmm. What, what have been your, some of your favorite interviews that you've done with psychologists off the clock. Oh, how do even pick? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, we were talking earlier about Robin Walzer, who we've both interviewed and, you know, she's lovely. I have a lot of fun. Sometimes we do co-host episodes together. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just did one with Jill Stoddard, who has also been on your podcast. I did one with her on imposter syndrome and we just did another one on burnout. That's not even released yet at this point. And those are fun because they take a little bit more of us coordinating things behind the scenes, but they're, you know, we know each other so well that they're very fun, chatty ones. Um, 
I recently interviewed another good friend slash colleague of mine, Meg McKelvey on belonging. And it was, to me, that was an episode that had a lot of heart to it because we both co-created a lot of it together. And, you know, it was just a very personally meaningful one to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there are some, I mean, that are just kind of fun. Like we on psychologists off the clock, we do a lot of interviews with people who have just interesting new books out and that kind of thing. And so sometimes those are just really exciting. Like I loved, um, I ever interviewed this, this, uh, organizational psychologist named Scott Sunshine, who's down in, I'm going to say he's at Rice. He's, and he has a book called, it's, it's, it's a book about resourcefulness. It's called Stretch. And he was just like the nicest, most interesting guy. And his book was really interesting. It's a little outside of my area. And he, I actually like picked his brain about some questions I had related to the podcast. And it was just, I mean, that's just fun because you get to stretch yourself a little bit stretch, right? You get to stretch your little yourself a little bit by learning about some new ideas in a different field. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a long answer. I don't know if I can really pin it down to just one because there that's been really, that's it. To me, that's one of the best things about the podcast. I don't know about you, Tom, but like you just meet people and you feel like you really get to know them pretty quickly in a conversation. Yeah. It's really cool. And then you have this connection that you, you may talk to that person again next week and they become a friend or that you might not talk to them for another year. And then something arises where there's something really meaningful to connect on and you have that foundation. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, what's it, what's, was it like for you to start doing a podcast and be in a position where you, the things you said and were out to the the world, was that, was that easy for you to do or was it challenging I would definitely say challenging is the answer to that. And I still grapple with it. I mean, I'm a parent, I'm a therapist. I'm aware that what I say on the podcast is out there, you know, and, and I think sometimes one of my values is authenticity. Like that's such a value to me that I didn't even, I didn't even ever like, you know, when you do an exercise about values and you maybe write down some values words, or you just imagine those qualities that are important to you, like authenticity. I don't think I would have put it on a list, but it's so ingrained in me that I just like, I don't want to try to pretend like I'm someone I'm not. And when I do, I feel a huge amount of like, it just doesn't sit well with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that striking that balance between being authentic, it's really important to me. I think as an act therapist that I'm very real about my own struggles to a degree, you know what I mean? I want to share that. I feel all these things that you feel and I want to share, but then it gets to the point where it's like too much. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't want to talk about, I don't want to tell personal stories about myself that are going to be, that I'm going to feel really embarrassed about later or, that it's like an overshare kind of thing. And it's that line to me is tricky. I mean, I don't know if I've found the right place with that, but I I think about that a lot. And definitely, you know, Brene Brown talks about the vulnerability hangover. Sometimes I think, especially early in podcasting, when I put my voice out there, I'd feel a little bit of that, like, Ooh, what are people going to say about this? And did I share too much? And it's just, 
there are moments when it feels uncomfortable. Um, mm. So I try to be cognizant of it, like just finding that sweet spot of open, but not too overly sharing about my personal stuff. Um, but it's, yeah, it's hard for sure. Yeah. That's a tough line to find, right? Yeah. Can I ask you? I I'm, yeah. I don't want <laughs> It's I'm okay. like, it's hard for me not to interview you right back because I'm so used to interviewing, but what, if, how do you navigate that, Tom? I don't go on other people's podcasts and, and make other, <laughs> you know what I mean? Got not it. that I've refused it, but I just, this is an imitation by anyone listening to be invited. It's like, I'm, I've only done my own podcast, so I'm usually in the position of asking other people questions. And when people ask me things, it's it's easy to get it off of me kind of quickly, not out of avoidance, but just out of wanting that to be the dynamic of the podcast. So I haven't had to come up with it into that place too much, but I've definitely felt it. And there's fear there. There's fear in those moments. There's a subtle background fear of how much to share and how open to be and what are going to be the consequences of this or who's going to listen and how is this going to be received in a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years? Um, and I, I tend to come back to the place of recognizing that authenticity or truth rests on two different levels. So when I hit those moments, maybe being authentic or truthful is sharing the content of the thing, but there's also a deeper level where being authentic could just sharing that I'm there's fear there. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Just um, acknowledging that. Yeah. You know, you were talking about worrying about how will it age in five years, 10 years, you know, it's out there in the public domain. And I've had, it's interesting because our, our field changes fast, right? New research comes out, new ideas, controversies. And I can definitely think of some things like I talked about a book once I didn't even interview the author of the book. I was just talking about a book. And then like a year later, that book was being really torn to shreds. People were criticizing it for, you know, overstating claims and this kind of thing. And I'm just sitting there thinking, oh no, I talked about that book. And in a way that was like, oh, listen to this. This is so interesting. And and you think that's a little embarrassing, not just embarrassing, but you just, I, I think we have a responsibility to, we're a little bit in the, we're trying to get some ideas out into the public and we have a responsibility to use that wisely. You know, I don't want to put things out into the world that are going to be unhelpful to people Mm -hmm. and are proven to be totally inaccurate in five years. And so it's a, it feels a little bit heavy in that regard sometimes too. Oh, totally. And maybe, maybe to tie it to work we do with clients. I think that's why I really like working from an act perspective because the six processes are things that will forever age well, <laughs> you That's know, true. like the, <laughs> the guiding somebody to connect to the present moment and figure out what matters to them and notice the thoughts running through their heads and open up to their emotions are things I feel very confident being, um, having as principles that I help somebody cultivate and, having less of a reliance on like some new intervention or the book I read, like while those things can be useful, but I I like having this like very secure foundation of the work that I do with people and how I live my life. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's, I never thought about it that way, but that idea that 
there are certain things that are just, you can't really dispute them, you know, values, the importance of social connection, you know, certain things. And it's like, if you stay grounded in those, you don't have to worry so much about, oh, the next fad that comes along and you latch onto it. And then like a year later, everybody's saying, oh, that was wrong. Yeah. yeah. Or even with like, like places that I show, I, I get nervous or can get self-conscious is like that place you get up to with clients where you feel like, or I guess just to maybe be more general, it's like as a therapist, we have a lot of responsibility and potential power over the way someone's life is guided. And for me, especially earlier on in my career, it's like you realize how much influence you can have over the way somebody's life looks like and how are we to know what's best for a client? And so that's why I love doing work with ACT where you can help somebody become more psychologically flexible and then where the topography of their life ends up, that's their choice and that's their flow of existence. And there's much more sense of um, harmony in me when I'm helping someone becoming more psychologically flexible rather than playing the role of having their life end up in a certain way. Right. Yeah. You're not giving them, okay, here's what you need to do. I mean, I will once in a while, but it's only in very specific situations, either they ask or if it's like a really, I don't know. There are moments when I actually do advice giving, but Mm -hmm. I do it very judiciously, like only when it seems helpful. And actually sometimes I'll do it just to see how the person reacts. Like, Hey, what if I told you to try this? How Mm. is that? What what do you think about that? And they might be like, no, that's a terrible idea. That's not going to be work. It's like, okay, we just learned something there. But I do think like if they can, if we can instead help them dig deeper into themselves and into their values and what's going to work in your life, why have you tried already? And then they, that's just empowering Yes. To the client, which is way better than the therapist tells you what to do with your life. Exactly. And yeah, maybe to have your back there, because I agree with you, like there is a role for like, let's try this experiment or just go do this Mm -hmm. and see what happens. I guess maybe the with more of the like, do I stay in this relationship or do I what job do I take or what career should I go into? It's it's fun just getting to help somebody with the journey of them understanding that for themselves. Right. Yeah. And I worry sometimes you're, this has happened to me before where I'm watching a client. Let's, let's use the relationship example. I'm watching a client with a relationship problem and, and it's hard to watch because you're like, something about this is really not good. (laughs) But if you jump in too quickly with that, maybe the client's not really there. Maybe they need to grapple with it a little bit. And so if I was, you know, in session three to be like, you need to end this relationship and move, that is not the right, that's just not the right place for the therapist to be in that, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And yeah. even if it's really, really bad, like it needs to come from the person's own choice. Yes. Yeah. Because there's, um, there's reverberations from pushing too prematurely on somebody Because think, let's, I mean, we don't have to go into specifics, but if you and I look back on our own life history, think about how many times you were, we were in a place of 
you know, distress or had some dysfunction going on and somebody from the outside who maybe was at a different place of life could have like told us exactly what we to do to get out of it. But I know some of my biggest moments of change or growth came from staying in that for a certain amount of time where I was almost forced to see things off like authentically within myself and maybe not having that time where I really had to drudge through something. It wouldn't have happened as organically. That's really true. I can think of some examples of that too in my life. And, and you think about times when someone did swoop in and tell you what you didn't (laughs) want to hear in that moment and how you reacted to that. Mm -hmm. And it's usually not, you don't say, Oh, good idea. Thank you. I'm going (laughs) to, stop doing this thing. Um, that's often the opposite of how we respond to that. Mm. What do you, in your clinical work now, what, what sort of, uh, like issues or areas of struggle for people? Where do you find what interests you most or you have the most, um, expertise in or however you want to phrase it, like what interests you most in clinical presentations? Well, I've carved out a bit of a niche area lately working with, um, I work with a lot of burnout and a lot of people who are, I've, I've actually really made a pretty big career switch lately within the last couple of years. And my clients right now are very different than they were a few years ago, different setting. But I, um, I worked in healthcare for many years as a psychologist in a medical setting, which I loved, but I did experience my own burnout. Hmm. And I also became very aware that this is, this is a thing. And it got me really interested in burnout, both from a personal experience point of view, and also just helping clients who are doing meaningful things in their life, whether it's work, professional burnout, or parenting, caregiving, that kind of thing. Um, but I found that, um, it's, to me, it's a very meaningful line of work to be doing. And and the clients that I work with, I think are people that I just, I really admire and they're really suffering. And Mm. so, and it's complex. There's no Mm. simple, like here, do this and you'll be fine kind of thing. And so more and more over time, I mean, that's not my entire caseload. I also work with a lot of people with you know, anxiety and depression and stress and that kind of thing. I work all with adults and I'm in private practice now. Um, but a lot of my clients are either healthcare professionals or other, they're in other roles where they're, you know, people are just tired. Like life is hard. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people just get really stuck and burnt out and exhausted. And that's, that's kind of what I've been drawn to lately in my work. Interesting. Could you expand on or like, uh, what burnout is like, how, what do you see as burnout? Um, well, the, the official definition of burnout is about just feeling kind of exhausted and disconnected from the role that you're burnt out in. So often it's work. Um, and then also just feeling ineffective in your job. And that's kind of the official definition. But I mean, I think that it can, you know, it looks different person to person, but the main thing is that what I usually see is that, oh, and therapists, I didn't even say this, like I work with therapists as who are my clients. I have, 
usually have several of those at any given time that I'm working with. Cause I think therapists also experience this too, but it's like, it's challenging work. It's meaningful work. There's a lot of demand on you to be performing at a high level. And just over time, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to make it sound bleak, but over time, like sometimes people just get to the point where they're like, almost like they've got nothing left to give kind of feeling. I mean, they do, but it feels like that. It just feels like I'm just exhausted. And I think with the pandemic and everything we've been through over the last couple of years, the words I kept hearing from my clients are, I'm exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I feel like I'm doing a terrible job Mm. as a parent, as a this, as a that. I'm just not Mm. as good at this as I used to be. And Mm. yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know about you as a therapist in the pandemic, I've had burnout, you know, most of us have it from time to time, but I've had moments when I just, it just all hit me and it just felt really, really hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot probably goes into burnout outside of what you're doing with work and the sort of milieu of your life with your relationships and finances. And there's probably a lot that goes into it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Is one is within myself when I think about that feeling of getting burnt out while it's multivaried, one of the variables I've noticed within myself that that shows up is how attached to outcomes I am with people. Is that something you've noticed within yourself or people you work with? Oh, you mean like clinical outcomes? Yeah. Like the outcomes of like how a client's doing or if what I'm doing is like working or making the change that I think needs to happen. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, of course we all, you know, really don't we all want our clients to, to just, do better. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And sometimes I struggle with that, right? Cause I kind of feel like I don't want to get too attached to that. And what, what does that even mean? Do better, you know, because, (laughs) because it's not that simple. Um, but I think as a therapist, uh, yeah, I want to feel like I'm pretty competent and good at it. And there are moments when I don't, when I, I wonder and, who knows? Maybe it's the client. Maybe it's just a really hard situation. Maybe it's a lot of different things, but I do think that sometimes I kind of, I want to hang my hat on like, look how effective I am. You know, clients come in and see me and it's great. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and that feels good on the therapist ego when that happens, but it's not, not always like that. Yes. Yeah. I noticed I, that resonates with me too. Yeah. And how, I think how do in, you, in a, go on, oh, go on. Well, go in a, and in a situation where people are just, you know, there's so much pressure. Well, it's a funny thing, right? Because we're talking about like as therapists having expectations on ourselves and on the work that we're doing. And I think that often that pressure, expectations, pressure, standards, that's, that's a contributor to burnout, right? Like feeling like we have to be really good at everything. We have to be mm-hmm. like, a really good parent and we have to work super hard and be really high achieving and have great outcomes with our clients. And, and it's like, that's impossible. But the more we buy into that, the more we struggle. Mm. How would you, 
How do you help your, since there's probably a lot of therapists listening to this than another profession, when you have therapists who come in that are really burnt out, what are some of the things you'll work on them with or guide them towards? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, again, it's, I think there's a lot of different layers to this, just like most issues that people come into our, you know, our therapy rooms with, there's a lot of layers to it. And it really depends on the situation. Um, I think sometimes helping people look at those kinds of expectations, have a little bit more self-compassion, go a little bit more easy on themselves. That can be really helpful. They don't, I think often we don't even notice that we're getting hooked by that kind of thing because we feel almost like we should be immune from it or something like that, but we're not, we're humans. Um, so I think that helping people look at their, what are they doing in response to this? Like if they're starting to feel burned out and they think, okay, well, I'm just gonna, this is what I do. Tom is that I said, well, I'm just going to work really hard so that I catch up on everything and then I can take a break and then it's all going to be great. It's like, then I get in this overwork pattern That really does not help with burnout, I find. (laughs) And so trying to find a different way to respond to it, it's really, you know, it's acceptance-based. Like, yeah, there's moments when being a therapist in a pandemic is very, very hard. And that's, we have to make space for that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, And sometimes it's more like changing something about the situation. You know, maybe you need a career change. Maybe you need to take better care of yourself, take a vacation. I mean, I don't want to jump to those things too quickly. Like, oh, you know, start practicing mindfulness and do yoga where it's like, as if that's going to solve a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. But those things can be really good, good and helpful for us and help people get to a better place. Um, mm-hmm. But often what I find with therapists, is just like anybody else is that it's, there's a lot of different it's like a multi-faceted approach to it. It's not just one quick fix to something like that. I feel like over the past month or so, I've been able to have a lot more compassion and understanding for what it what must have been like for a lot of therapists during like the during the, when the pandemic was strong, because I was one of the lucky ones that the pandemic didn't really disrupt my life that much. You know, I didn't have many people close to me affected. I kept my job. Life kind of got smaller with my partner and my dog. And that was kind of nice. You know, I lived in a place where I could go out in nature. And so, whereas I know that wasn't the case for a lot of people during the pandemic with kids who have home and have to do with school or they're losing their jobs or all these things. So, but yeah, over the past month with some challenges and life transitions coming up, it's a really interesting dynamic when we're struggling or have our own challenges as a therapist and then also being in the role of helping other people. It really puts into practice that ability to have a, opposing feelings happening at the same time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to me, it goes, this is related to something that we were talking about earlier with podcasting and like, how much do you share and how much do you, um, yeah. How much do you 
acknowledge your own humanness in that way. There's a responsibility there. And I think one thing that's been really interesting for therapists over this really challenging period of time is that we're going through some of the same challenges as our clients at the same time. And we're trying to figure things out. We're trying to make it work and deal with our own emotions as we're also trying to show up for our clients and be helpful to them. And I can just remember a few very acutely stressful events, like the political stuff that happened and the very beginning of the pandemic and some of the other things that were going on in the world and just having these moments where I'm showing up for my client, just asking this question of like, how much, you know, my clients will say, how are you doing? And I tend to be pretty open. So a lot of times I'll be like, wow, this has been weird. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. what's going on? And, and I think there to some degree, that's kind of validating and normalizing, but then it's like, at what point am I like making this about me or, (laughs) you know, am I trying to use therapy with a client to like process this myself? And is that helpful? But maybe it is, I don't know. Um, It's been very interesting. I think time to be a therapist. Yes. Yeah. It's a very interesting and subtle moment when you're in a session with somebody and you do the basic, how are you? And then a client asks you how you're doing and then you give an answer and they want to keep going with it. And on one level, you're, you're just two humans talking to each other and you care about this person. And then on the other level, you're in this therapist hat and you want it to be about a client. And those moments of like, figuring out how far to go in with your own experience. And yeah, it's really interesting because then there's also this again, subtle, but I don't know if it's just like not harmonious moment when you pull away, when a client is sincerely interested and caring about what's going on with you, you know, and you kind of pull out of that too quickly out of your own discomfort. Do you know that moment? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's like you get a little bit, it um, and I just imagine it feels a little bit cold or yeah. detached or something. If all of a sudden you're, you know, you're buttoning up your shirt and being like, <laughs> "Well, I'm the therapist here. I can't talk to you about that," or something. You know? Yeah, they're they're yeah. kind of genuinely curious about you, and mm-hmm. you're a human, and and there's something good to me about that. About like, yeah, we're two humans sitting here in a room trying to do our best. Um, Mm -hmm. but then if it goes a little too far and you retreat, that could feel, that could feel a little funny for the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These are all these like really deep energetic levels of the session that are just the, once you do it for a while and I'm not too far into my career, but like, yeah, once you've had enough sessions, you start to like sense these very interesting and nuanced energies that get exchanged and play around with, with another person in session. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like as I've been in the field for more years, I get a little looser and I actually Mm -hmm. think it's a good kind of looser. It's not like a, well, at least I hope it's not a unprofessional type of looser, but I just get a little bit less concerned about like 
what the therapist is supposed to be like. You know, if you think about therapist, like the kind of the image of the therapist on the couch with the notepad. And I mean, I, you know, I take notes, don't get me wrong, but like (laughs) the therapist who is just like the, the TV version of the therapist or something, but I get a little bit more to like, this is just me, you know, I have skills. I know stuff, but like, I'm not trying to be something other than who I am in the room. And I think that's, better i do yeah i think it's better yeah. to, to be your version of a therapist than it is to try to fit the mold of a therapist and lose humanness with your client yeah well that's a pretty beautiful way to wrap up here i like that i completely oh. agree with you well thank yeah. you yeah thank you it was this time really flew by um i uh it was great talking to you. Like we started saying in the beginning, we just kind of got into a flow and I don't even know what we talked about. We just kind of <laughs> went with it. You know, but that's what happens, right? Like when you're really in the moment with something, it's, you're not in your mind tracking and like collecting data about what's happening. It's just happening. So I'm excited to listen through it again. And I'm glad that we had this time together. Me too. Yeah. Things just unfolded and we, It was really a pleasure. And like you said, one of the beauties of doing podcasts is you meet these wonderful people and then hopefully paths cross again down the road. And yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you, Tom. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope we can connect in person sometime. I love Colorado. I went out once and it was such a great time and loved going out to the mountains and Denver's a cool city. So maybe I'll make it out there again and we can connect in person. Please do. Come on out. I'd love to. We'll go out for coffee or whatever. Awesome. It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep. When the entire world kept feeding on my grief.